Hello and welcome to Ohio Folklore. I'm your host, Melissa Davies. I'm so glad you could join me. Today, we journey to the rock and roll capital of the world, Cleveland, Ohio. It's there, down a tree-lined street in the historic Ohio City neighborhood, one residence that has held the imagination of Clevelanders for over a century. Its four stories and more than 20 rooms were built with heavy sandstone blocks, laid down in much the same way as stonemasons did in medieval times. Its 80 long and narrow windows are adorned with stone carvings and elaborate wrought iron fences. Don't bother trying to look in, though. Internal blinds and shutters block any view, and an outer fence that runs along the property supports a sign stating, No Trespassing. Despite these encumbrances, there's no doubting just what this unusual edifice is. Just above the front entrance, painted in bold Old English script, is its name, Franklin Castle. Those who have lived within the home's walls have reported the disembodied voices of babies crying in the night. Footsteps glide against the hardwood floors. And on some occasions, residents and guests alike have reported seeing ghostly figures moving from room to room. Although not currently open to the public, these unexplained experiences have been well documented through various media accounts. Perhaps the most famed is an episode of Paranormal Lockdown, a reality TV show that showcased two ghost hunters' 72-hour investigation of the place. If you search for Franklin Castle on YouTube, you'll easily find a video posted in 2009 by a user named Castle Seeker. He claims to have crawled through a window in order to do a little amateur ghost hunting. He states that he set up multiple stationary cameras throughout the house and was amazed at what he found. The video, which is pointed at a fireplace on the main floor, shows a large white light whiz past the lens. As the video is slowed down, you can start to make out what looks like the top of a flowing white dress with an undefined mass where the head should be. Many viewers claimed it a fake. Others found it convincing. I'll post a link to the video on Ohio Folklore's Facebook page if you'd like to have a look for yourself. For those of you who hail from Ohio's northeast corner, you've likely heard a great deal about Cleveland's most haunted house. But there's a few details about the location's history that you may not have heard, details that add to the ominous and foreboding mood about the place. For those of us who know nothing about it, let's sit back, relax, and let our imaginations wander in a northeasterly direction until we land on the stoop of 4308 Franklin Boulevard, Cleveland, Ohio. When we think of castles, we think of princesses and armored horses. We think of battering rams and muddied moats encircling thick stone walls. We certainly don't think of Cleveland, Ohio. Perhaps it's the building's out-of-placeness that first captured the imaginations of locals when construction was completed in 1883. Whatever the reason, strange stories about this odd structure have survived for over a century. The legend, as recounted by so many over the years, is a mix of fact and fiction. It goes something like this. Hans Tiedemann, a wealthy German immigrant and banker, 
had built the home for himself, his wife, Louise, and their young children. Hans was a man of many resources and considerable social standing. He couldn't have predicted the successive tragedies which would befall the family not long after they took residence. It started with the couple's teenage daughter, Emma, who died of complications of diabetes, although rumors would soon flow alleging that her true demise came at the hands of her father. The tale goes that he attacked her in a rage after discovering she had taken a lover. The claim was that he couldn't risk her sullied reputation getting out and ruining his standing in the community. The death of Han's mother would follow only two months later, but nothing would compare to the heart-wrenching deaths of three of the couple's remaining young children, all within the span of a week. The tales of these deaths have been told and retold so often that they've been assumed true. Records show, however, that the deaths of their children had all occurred years before construction on the home was completed. Childhood mortality rates were high in those times, and raising a child to adulthood was never a given, as we so easily assume today. Despite this, rumors of Hans's murderous impulses ran rampant across the neighborhood. Maybe it was just too painful to believe that one family could suffer so much loss as the result of natural causes. I mean, if they were to accept that, they'd have to accept their own vulnerabilities to the same fate. In any case, Hans's wife, Louise, was teetering on the brink of insanity when her husband suggested a meaningful project to get her mind off the terrible pain. The house. They would renovate it in a spectacular fashion, so it would stand out amongst the stately Victorian homes on Franklin Boulevard. Achieving this would require no small effort. I'm talking turrets and secret passageways and an entire ballroom fit for a king. From that point forward in the oral history, Hans took on the character of a murderous tyrant. Stories flowed about the servant girl he'd made his mistress and then killed when he discovered she'd accepted a marriage proposal of another man. The juiciest part of the story was that Hans had strangled her in one of the secret passageways, and on her wedding day, no less. Later, he would hang her body from the ceiling to make it look like a suicide. This is just one of the many rumors of Hans's murderous rages. Each story ends with our villain outwitting everyone, staging some exculpatory scene, and evading justice yet again. Records do show that Hans's wife, Louise, died in 1895, likely of complications due to alcoholism. After marrying and divorcing a second wife, Hans would ultimately outlive his last remaining child. He died suddenly from a stroke in 1908 with no heirs to the estate. Franklin Castle would go up for sale and was ultimately purchased by a beer maker from Buffalo named Mulehauser. Ownership would change again in 1921 when a group representing the German Socialist Party purchased it. They named it Eintracht Hall. The neighborhood gossip about Hans Tiedemann's murderous rages is one thing. Throw some alleged German spies into the story and you've got folklore run amok. Some believe these alleged German spies reported back to the fatherland with secret radios contained within the home's massive walls. In terms of what can be substantiated, Franklin Castle was indeed used to house meetings of the German-American League for Culture. 
A December 1938 article in the Cleveland Plain Dealer laid out the property's activities in the lead-up to World War II. At the time, Adolf Hitler had been gaining power and fanning the flames of anti-Semitism across Germany. It was then that a reporter from Chicago, a Mr. Martin Hall, organized the meeting at Franklin Castle. He was a refugee from Germany on account of his refusal to divorce his Jewish wife, as was required of him by German authorities. He refused and fled to the U.S. In an effort to further the cause against Nazism, he convened the meeting in hopes of urging prominent German-Americans to denounce Hitler's practices. He worried that the Nazi party's influence was growing. He didn't want the world to think that Nazis spoke for all Germans and feared another world war. He claimed that speaking out was necessary to stop Hitler's evil forces. He believed there was still time to stop him if others were willing to speak up with him. For all the claims about Franklin Castle, perhaps this one is truly the most haunting, considering what one group of prominent German-Americans was trying to achieve there. If only they'd been successful. During Prohibition, neighbors believed that intricate underground tunnels ran underneath the castle, used for illegal transportation of hooch, which had been distilled on the premises. Word had it that a group of unruly bootleggers had been gunned down in one of the rooms and buried under the basement floor. Into all this outsized lore walks an unsuspecting family, the Romanos. In 1967, they purchased the home as both a primary residence and with the plans of turning it into a restaurant. What a wicked surprise it must have been on move-in day when two of the Romano's young children discovered a little girl in a white Victorian dress waiting for them upstairs. She was crying and clearly in distress. They thought a cookie from the kitchen might help console her. Of course, on bringing their mother to come see her, she had somehow disappeared. These children are now adults, of course, Jimmy and Dee Romano. They have recounted their unexplainable experiences many times to various media outlets. Their stories have remained consistent. They had seen the girl on multiple occasions, always dressed in period clothing. They'd talked to her. They'd played with her. They'd asked if she wanted to go home. Her puzzlement at this question wouldn't fully register until much later, once they'd grown and matured, and came to understand that this little girl was not fully of this world. The Romano family would become accustomed to eerie voices and unmistakable footsteps trolling along the ballroom floor. Of course, no one was there. The activity would escalate to a point where Mrs. Romano herself witnessed the full-bodied apparition of a woman dressed in black standing at the third-floor window in the turret. These paranormal claims couldn't be contained, and the unusual home once again became the subject of hushed conversations among neighbors. Soon enough, word spread beyond the bounds of the Ohio City neighborhood to the city at large. Newspaper reporters came knocking. A famous radio DJ held a live show from the place. Through it all, the Romanos stayed for about five years, determined to claim the home as their own. 
Unsubstantiated rumors claimed that one day a psychic medium told Mrs. Romano that the spirit's wrath was growing and that if they refused to leave, one of the Romano children would die. The family had indeed moved to West Salem, a community 50 miles south of Cleveland, and sadly, a child would be lost to them. In 1976, an 11-year-old son, John Romano, would be struck dead by a car. He had run out into the path of it as it was driving northbound on U.S. 42. The, quote, warning delivered by a medium was totally fabricated by the public. Again, we find the tragedy of losing a child too awful to bear, and we conjure up a story to explain it, such as the way of folklore, finding some way to explain the unimaginable. After the Romano's departure from the home, two men by the names of Sam Muscatello and Tim Swope purchased the home with the intent of using it for, of all things, a church. The men were both clergy of the Universal Christian Church, a religious sect deemed a cult by governmental agencies. The most controversial issue with the group was their tendency to refuse children medical care, sometimes resulting in their deaths. A June 1975 article from the Mansfield News Journal outlined the men's plans for the property in detail and laid them against the building's already well-known reputation as a haunted location. The story goes that the ballroom, one of the more striking interior features of the home, and the center of so many claims of paranormal activity, would be the very location for congregants to meet every Sunday. The men had big dreams for their venture and decided to cash in on the hype that had surrounded the place for so long. They began charging $1.50 for tours of the place. For those who were even more adventurous, payment of a full $15 got you an overnight stay. The men felt no moral compunction about the money-making scheme, claiming that in the end it was all for the Lord anyway. They were surprised to find that people in the neighborhood wanted nothing to do with it. Through the decades, they'd seen what the home had done to its occupants and wanted no part of it. Many neighborhood residents had claimed they had seen the woman in black standing in the third floor window. Undeterred, Reverend Swope threw himself into the task of turning the property into a money-making machine. His claims in the press that there were no evil spirits, however, were not convincing. During his 10 weeks of working to renovate the property from the inside, he blared the radio. It was the only way to drown out the voices, the footsteps, the unexplained knocking and thumps. He came to call one room on the third floor, Karen's room. The space was always at least 10 degrees cooler than the rest of the house for no discernible reason. Swope claimed that Karen would often touch his neck and shoulder. Reverend Sam Muscatello, on the other hand, had other news to share about the Franklin Castle. A January 1975 article in the Dayton Daily News detailed his discovery of human bones while building a secret passageway within the building. An official from the Cuyahoga County Coroner's Office would confirm that the bones, two femurs, and part of a pelvis were indeed human and that they were, quote, old, although the exact age was unknown. They were dried out and fragile to the touch. 
Muscatello had been cutting through a wall and states that when he stepped through the space before him, he found the bones there at his feet. Further on in the article, Muscatello would regale the reporter with his own tale of a paranormal experience there in the building. Just as he was about to descend the third floor stairs, he saw a strange light exit a room on the second floor. It floated up the stairs, moving past him, and onto the fourth floor. Newspaper readers ate that up. However, newspaper sales didn't seem to correlate with tickets sold at the Franklin Castle. The men would fold on their plans and sell the home, claiming that the paranormal disturbances became too much for them to stomach. The house would be sold yet again, many times over, in fact, and surprisingly, new owners, the likes of which included the Cleveland police chief, wouldn't seem to hold on to it for long. Most assumed that the restless spirits within were to blame. And in 1999, the Franklin Castle would fall victim to an arsonist. The fire nearly destroyed it, but it was salvaged by Michelle Heimberger, a co-founder of the Yahoo search engine. Today, rumor has it that the current owner is converting the building into separate apartments for use as a rental property. So is the property at 4308 Franklin Boulevard haunted? Like any such claim, it's up for debate. Whether or not ghosts take residence within its walls, the structure's reputation in the Cleveland area is undeniable, and it's lasted for over 130 years. It's been the source for stories of a murderous father and German spies, of desperate ghost children, and a failed church start Whatever the truth is about this unusual piece of history, it will loom large in Ohio folklore for years to come. And if you're looking for a way to toast the memory of this spectacular place, stop by your local beverage center and pick up a six-pack of Franklin Castle beer, bottled by Cleveland's Market Garden Brewery. This concludes the legendary stories that have been passed down from person to person about this unusual property on Cleveland's west side. Some of the details are factual, some are not, as is the case with any folktale. For those of you listeners who'd like an in-depth analysis of what can be known about the Franklin Castle, look up the book Haunted Franklin Castle by William C. Kredzi and John W. Myers. The pair did a deep dive on historical and genealogical records to weed out the truth from the fiction. And as we're approaching the fall season, remember, if you're in Northeast Ohio, I'll be doing a presentation at the Avon Public Library on October 24th at 7 p.m. Hope to see you there. If you've enjoyed listening to this week's episode of Ohio Folklore, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on your chosen podcast platform. You can find Ohio Folklore at ohiofolklore.com and on Facebook. And as always, keep wondering.